So we're joined in this episode by Janet Dean. Janet will be reading from and talking to us about The Peacemaker. Janet, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Thank you for inviting me, Yvonne. It's really nice to be here. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I love being read to. And any opportunities that I have to be read to, I try to take them or create them. So thank you ever so much. You're welcome. So how about we just dive right in? Yeah. Where did the idea for The Peacemaker come from? Well, it's a family history story. Um, It's my mother's story um, about her mother. And it's really the heart of the story is... Um, my grandmother, um, who married when she was 18, um, just before the First World War, a young man who died on the Somme in 1916. And she then subsequently married my grandfather. And my mother grew up feeling quite irrationally that this lovely young man who died in the First World War, if he'd have been her father, she would have had a much better life because my grandfather was a bit of a drunkard and a bit of a waster. And so it's my mother's story of what could have been, you know. And so my idea for a novel was to, and I suppose what what I realised at a distance from these two world wars was actually there was only about 20 years between them. You know, the First World War ended in 1918. The Second World War started in 1939. So my mother was born in 1920, and she was 19 when the Second World War started. Mm. So, and yet, you know, for her, the First World War was already history. So I was interested in the idea that before we're born, it's all history. And I created a story which really was about um, two women who were both teenagers at the start of these two subsequent wars. And it's not, it's got my family history at the core of it, but it's actually fiction. So what happens to these two women is quite fictional. And, but in writing it, the thing that I really discovered, and I suppose what my readings are about today, is this person that my mother, my grandfather, and how my mother saw my grandfather. I knew him. um, He died when I was about six. He, she saw him in a very negative way, you know, as I said, a drunken, kind of no good type of person. But he had been through all the major battles in the First World War. And he'd survived, you know, so he had that survivor's guilt. And my feeling about it is he probably was, he probably had what we would call now PTSD. Mm. You know, he probably had terrible mental health problems. And in some ways, writing this book was, it was a bit of a rehabilitation of his kind of memory, you know. Um, So it's, it's about the mother and the daughter, but it's also about the daughter and the father. So that's really, you know, about them making their peace. Um, And that's really what happens at the end of the book. But they, I think the daughter actually comes to recognise that um, he was a good man and not not just the horrible waster that she thought he was. What a beautiful gift to be able to give your family. Yeah. And they're all dead. (laughs) But, you know. But it's nice to do that, isn't it, as a memory, you know? Yeah. 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 Could we have a reading, please? 
Yes. And so the first um, reading I'm going to do is really to give you that picture of the teenage Violet. She's the young woman just before the Second World War and her father, Ellis, who went through the First World War. Um, and, you know, her view of him is a bit of a drunk. So here we are. Violet's mother, Peggy, is dying and Ellis is in the pub. So um, the crown was no more than a few doors down, but it seemed like miles. Violet felt the pinch of her shoes and the swish of her skirt. She pulled on the heavy front door and nudged the swing door to the bar with her elbow. There was a low din with top notes of screeching laughter. She caught the eye of the landlord. Now then, Violet, come to dig out your old man. When she asked where Pop was, the barman gave a nod toward the back door and she responded with a nod of her own. Pop was spark out, his head on folded arms, his cap awry, the dregs of his pint in a grubby glass at his elbow. His cronies laughed and joked around him without a care. She pushed her way through and prodded him hard on his shoulder. Pop, get up. I want you home this minute. One of the jokers spotted her and told her she'd have a job rousing him. This set them off. Don't stand there laughing. Help me get him up. Mars not well. The old chap nudged another of his pals and the smile slid off their faces. They gathered together and helped Violet get her father to his feet. Come on, Ellis, time to go home. Pop was too drunk to answer. Can you take him outside for me? She asked the old lads. I'll ask, said one, holding her father under his arm. Violet watched them shuffle out with Pop. She picked up his filthy glass and walked back to the bar. Fill that with water, will you? It's for Pop. She walked out of the crown, carrying the full glass. The men were holding Pop, his head drooping between them like a shot stag. I've got some water. Can you hold his head up? One of the men whipped off Pop's cap, clutched his hair at the top where there was some length and pulled back his head. Violet moved gingerly with the water, aiming it for his mouth. Then quickly, she chucked the full pint over him, drenching his head, face and shoulders. Sober up, you drunken old fool. The men were stunned. Pop shook his head like a dog after a dip. He was growling, but he said nothing. He shook his pals off, pulled himself upright and turned to follow Violet home. They marched in silence, Violet several paces in front, Pop barely keeping up. At the door, she turned to warn him. Go and wash your mouth in the scullery. Don't let her smell beer on your breath. Pop looked up at Violet, standing above him on the front steps. His eyes filled and his lip trembled. In the bedroom, Daisy sat on the low stool next to her mother. Peggy's pale hand rested on her daughter's red palm. A candle burned in a sconce on the wall, the hot wax masking the smell. She didn't look up when Violet came in. The rattle has stopped. That's a good thing. You know it's not. Don't lie, Violet. Pop's coming. Violet had never seen a man so scared. She knew he'd been in France and that he'd been gassed, but Pop had never talked of his time in the war, so she guessed he must have been very scared then, though not this scared. Daisy got up to let Pop sit down, but he ignored the stool and knelt at Peggy's side. He held her hand in both of his, 
clumsy paws wrapped around fine fingers. Peggy, can you hear me, love? Mars lips parted and she let out a soft breath in answer. She was still there. Pop's familiar drunken wine made Violet cringe. He was even more pathetic than usual when he'd had a skinful and had something to be sorry for. But this time, he knew he'd left it too late. Wow. It's a really gripping opening. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I felt like I was holding my breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's really nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you. So the book, you explore a lot of themes in it. And so some of them are family. And then I have this private and public war, history, grief, secrets. And there's so much more alcoholism, trauma. What does 1938 or historical fiction in general make possible in terms of the themes that you want to explore? Well, I think it was, as I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, for me, there was this discovery as I was researching the book that, um, you know, 1938 was a, a year, um, you know, very significantly the year of the Munich Agreement. And in fact, the week that Violet spends in the North York Moors, which is where her family are from, um, is the week in which Chamberlain is going to Munich to try to make peace with Hitler. And I had this kind of parallel situation where Violet had effectively got herself into trouble, though girls don't get themselves into trouble, boys get them into trouble. So Violet finds that she's pregnant just before, um, whilst all this, you know, all this kind of turmoil, political turmoil is happening. And she doesn't know anything about her parents' history at all. So um, after her mother dies, she goes back to their home village in the North York Moors and she starts to unravel all these secrets about what happened to her mother um, during the First World War after her first husband died. And in the story is a parallel story of Peggy, who after she's widowed the first, well, she's widowed, when her first husband dies on the song, she kind of goes off the rails a bit. Mm. And she, you know, she, she's a, she, you know, she gets out of control and somebody takes advantage of her. And she ends up, you know, in a difficult situation. And what Violet discovers through this process of talking to people who knew her parents at that time is that her father rescued Peggy effectively. And that's why they were married. Um, but she also discovers, you know, what her father went through in terms of the battles of the First World War. Um, so it's, you know, it's about kind of family battles and family trauma, but it's also about the political um, situation and the trauma that, uh, that a whole countries are going through and how people are trying to deal with that. So that's what I was working through as I wrote as I wrote the story. It sounds like it's also a powerful reminder for us to define those stories, um, family stories, and to to you know listen and also to remember that people were full people before they became you know yeah. the roles that we know them yes. in and giving Absolutely. a chance to get to know them in that way. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And, and you know, it's so true that people who've been through traumatic experiences don't talk about them. What I discovered in doing my family history research was that my great-grandfather, because my family are miners going back a long time, ironstone miners in the North York Moors, coal miners in South Yorkshire. And what I discovered was that my, gran- my great-grandfather was killed in a mining accident. Well, I never knew that. That was never spoken about in our family. But what was very clear in our family was um, by the time my brother and I were ready to leave home and start our working lives, my mother w- would not allow him to go down the pit to work in a, in a colony. And, you know, you kind of wonder whether that's because my father had had so much ill health. He'd been buried lots of times by working down the pit. Mm. My grandfather had had, you know, obviously alcoholism and other perhaps mental health problems. But I didn't know about this um, death. And I, I think that wasn't spoken about. You know, it's quite interesting what secrets are kept, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, this um, second one is really, you know, the heart of the the story is this um, Peggy's two marriages, you know, first one to the kind of hero, Bertie, who's this handsome young chap who dies on the song. Um, and the second one to Ellis, who's a bit more of a sad um, character. But we get we get Ellis's story in the book through kind of flashbacks chapters where he's remembering um, what was happening just before or around the time of the First World War. And um, this is him remembering uh, the experience of realising that Peggy was in love with Bertie and he he really wanted to try and persuade her to marry him, really, rather than Bertie. So this is what this is about. And he's this is written in 1938, but looking back. So now... Ellis rolled onto his stomach, sobbing on the bed he'd shared for more than 20 years with Peggy, smelling her flowery scent on the sheet. How could he have lost her again? He had tried his best to keep her even then. Within a week, he'd set his mind to asking Hannah if he could move back into the fox. She'd laughed and asked why, and he'd come up with a tale that he wasn't getting on with his mother's lodger, the one she took in when Billy left home. It was a lie because the lodger was a mild man in his 40s who barely spoke. Ellis told Hannah that his mother wouldn't mind him going because if he gave up his bed, the lodger's son was looking for work in the mine and would take it quick as a flash. This was true enough and would be a help to his mother as she would charge the lodger's son a shilling more than Ellis gave her. Now she'd let him off tipping up his wages. What was he thinking by moving back to the fox? that Peggy would turn away from the handsome Bertie with his nut-brown hair and dark lashes and fancy instead Ellis's bulbous nose and his weak, whiskery chin. It was torture, but one he couldn't avoid. He had to be near her to hope for a moment when he might take his chance. And it did come, that moment, almost a year later, not long in the end after the Archduke was shot. Everything changed that summer. And it seemed as though they'd all been picked up and tossed about. There was a lot of excitement and fear. Ellis was still drinking in the Thorndale Arms as he felt it wrong to drink in the Fox. He never had, and he didn't want Peggy to see him worse for drink, the worst for drink. 
All his pals were talking about a war and some of them were thinking of joining up straight away, although Ellis was of the view that he might as well wait until he had to fight if it came to that. Quite a few were planning to marry before they went off and Ellis felt that if he could get Peggy to marry him, he would join the army to impress her if that's what did impress her. Well, it seemed it did because late that summer, it might have been September even by then, Hannah made a point of telling Ellis that she tried her best to stop Peggy marrying Bertie, but they'd gone and booked the registry in Darlington three weeks before, and it was happening the next day. Something made him feel that Hannah was telling him for a reason, but he couldn't be certain. All these years later, Ellis felt the desperation of that long night alone in the hayloft of the barn in the fox yard, where he'd slept from being a young boy. He turned in his bed all night, pitching between a desperate hope that Peggy would change her mind and realise how much he loved her, and trying to persuade himself to give up this foolish dream and face the facts. He'd lost her. In the morning, though, quite early, so that he would be sure she hadn't left for Darlington, he couldn't stop himself going to her. He found her taking in eggs for breakfast. I heard you to be married, Peg. Now today at noon, just mother and father. Iris and Walter will be our witnesses. She seemed to be half apologising for not inviting him. Alice hadn't planned what he would say, but it came anyway. Is it, do you think it's the best idea to be marrying that lad if he's going to France? Peggy wasn't angry at first. She just gave Alice a look as if he were a simple soul, gazing pityingly at him, which was worse than anger. It is the best idea, believe me, Alice, it is. He cringed now, lying with his face buried in bedclothes, his hands clutched the rough blanket under the silky eiderdown. His sore eyes still poured what seemed like endless tears. He could see himself, how foolish he'd been, but he was determined to show her how much he wanted her. I haven't joined up yet. She'd been about to walk away, but this made her turn to look him full in the face. Will you? Not if you would marry me, if you wanted a husband to stay and look after you. That might be a better thing for you, might it, Peggy? He could hear her laugh, even now, and her cruel words never left him, once she'd said them. Ellis, you're a fool. I love Bertie, that's why I'm marrying him. It will be worth more for me to have a few weeks, a few days even, with Bertie, as his wife, than a hundred years married to you. That sour bile that rose in his stomach on that morning rose again as he relived the bitter moment. There was nothing more he could say, but he did say one thing. If you ever need me, Peggy, for any reason, anything at all, you only have to ask. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the romance at the heart of things, isn't it? Yeah, in those misunderstandings and miscommunications and misconnections that I think yeah. um, kind of flow through, you know, so many lives and so many stories. Yeah. Yeah. So many people and kind of what do you do with that, you know, that that pain or that rejection and then coming back and then kind of rescuing someone from a situation. And you, um, you know, you might imagine like always hoping that that turns into love. And yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my starting point, I go back to what to my mother's view of her father, you know, was that. She couldn't imagine why her mother, who she idolised, because 
you know, Peg, my, my mother's mother did die when my mother was 18. Mm. And, you know, that the loss that she experienced, she really did believe that her mother was a beautiful, you know, refined, lovely woman, and that her father was an ugly, miserable, you know, good for nothing. <laughs> so my mother was making this story up in, you know, in her mind, in the telling of the the truth that, you know, um, she she couldn't understand why her mother had, had married my granddad, who was the lodger, you know, at my grandmother's pub. And uh, so I had to kind of make something up, really, <laughs> almost in her honour, you know, because there had to be something, um, some reason why my, my grandmother would marry my grandfather. And, and, you know, so I made it, I made it that he saved her in the end you know that he saved her from you know a difficult situation but uh yeah it's uh interesting isn't it really how we find our plots <laughs> <laughs> it is so you know i only get one more question to ask mm. um and it is and it's i think for me it's a good one because i am incredibly nosy especially i just love hearing about writers processes and yeah. discoveries so my final question is, if you could tell us about something that you discovered during your research, um, it could be about the setting, the time, character, people, anything at all, but something that was interesting to you, but that did not make its way into the book. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I included a lot of my research in the book and I included, you know, things, even, I even research, you know, when ginger nuts were available and you know so that I got the biscuits right and you know and I researched a lot of lipstick colors and all sorts of you know very small details which I felt you know I um a, a friend of mine who read the book took me to task because he believed that filter tip cigarettes weren't widely available and I did some post-publication research to kind of prove him wrong on that one so that was satisfying um and and I had a reader who's a historical fiction writer who helped me get some details right about the kind of farming that was going on in the North York Moors at the time and also uh, what York Station was like at the time because I'd originally described that in an inaccurate way. But the things that I missed out, um, I remember spending a very rainy afternoon in York Library going through the microfiche newspapers from the time and, you know, one thing that really, really struck me was that there's a taxi firm in York that, you know, is around the streets that you see all the time called Streamline 365365, you know, Streamline Taxis. Well, that taxi firm started in 1938 in York, you know. So I found that really interesting because I'd kind of, you don't think, do you, that a taxi yeah. firm <laughs> is going to have been started in 1938 because it's, Seems very historic, you know. Um, but obviously, the the cars were very different in those days. And I would have liked somebody to have taken a taxi somewhere, but I'm afraid they just took buses and trains in my book. So <laughs> the taxi never made it. I would have really liked that to have been in there, but it it wasn't in there. So maybe next time. <laughs> maybe next time. I need a I need a a, a story about a taxi. Somehow. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You've been such a wonderful guest. And my final, final question, so it's like 3.0, is where can we buy <laughs> where can we buy the peacemaker? 
Well, I mean, the, it's available everywhere. You know, Amazon is available on Waterstones online. Um, you can get it on World of Books, which is secondhand. So you can, you know, it's very, very widely available. Um, you can get it from me if you find my website um, and contact me on, on the online form. My website address is jdknight.com. So my, right, my name for... My pen name for writing this book is Janet Dean Knight. So people can buy it directly from me. Um, but actually, you know, it's available pretty much everywhere. So do try and find it if you can. It would be great. It's available on Kindle, I should say, as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Janet, thank you so much for being our guest and for reading to us and talking about the book. It's been such a delight. Thank you ever so much. Well, thank you, Yvonne. It's lovely to have met you. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. Anytime. You can be my guest anytime. Oh, I'd thank love you. to. I'd love to. Let's do some retreats together. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. 